in the middle. And what a finish that is. Mason Mounts. That is extraordinary from Fikayo Tomori. This is Callum Hudson. And oh, and there it is. His first goal. For Chelsea, the teenager, a moment he will remember. Hello and welcome back to the Chelsea Spot Podcast. Make sure to check us out on all our social media platforms, including our website, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, iTunes, all of that. You know the drill by now. Um, but today um, we have a very, very special guest. I'm delighted to join by Chelsea correspondent for The Athletic, Liam Toomey. Thanks so much for joining me, Liam. No worries, guys. Thank you. Pleasure to be on and talking about Chelsea. Yeah, and also... Alongside me as my co-host today, I've got the owner of uh, the Chelsea Sport Path. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing great, mate. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, looking forward to this. Um, so if it's all right with you, Liam, we're going to just start with uh, your kind of journey, how you got into journalism, career, all of that. And then afterwards, going to jump into all the juicy details about Chelsea right now uh, that the listeners will be will be interested in. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you, really, is... Um, how did it all start for you, basically? Did you always want to get into football journalism? Was it kind of um, something that just happened or, or how did it start? Yeah, so th- this is a question I get asked quite a lot by young people that are wanting to get into the industry. Um, and I feel like my progression is kind of proof or it's part evidence for the fact that this industry, the media industry, is a bit strange. There are into it that are the same and it, and it's changed so much even in the time that I've been working in it which is about 10 years now or nine ten years um, it's completely different from when I started but basically I came out of university I studied ancient history so classic journalism <laughs> pathway <Yeah>. no um, <laughs> graduated and uh, didn't really have a clue what I wanted to do other than I've always been mad about football um, would have liked to have played it wasn't quite good enough uh, so the, the next step was trying to write about it and I, I, I always enjoyed writing did a lot of essay subjects obviously ancient history is an essay subject um, so I was used to writing like football decided to try and give it a go wrote off to a lot of different places a lot of different newspapers who came back saying well uh, you and you and you and thousands of others want to do this and you've got no experience so come back in a couple of years uh but goal.com came back to me and at the time they were running uh a internship scheme which was quite criticized within the industry um for being well people accused it of being essentially unpaid labor uh which to an extent all internships are it's always a trade-off between what you what you're getting out of it and what you're giving them but I'm eternally grateful to them because they gave me amazing opportunities uh, to go to Premier League games when I was about 21, 22, um, when no one else would have sent people that young into Premier League press rooms on their own. Uh, Gave me a chance to do loads of interviews. I was was sub-editing for them primarily, so proofreading other people's copy, writing news myself. So at the same time, I was studying for my NCTJ qualification at News Associates. In At that time, it was in Wimbledon. I think they're in Twickenham now. I'd recommend that to anyone, by the way. They're a fantastic journalism training school. Uh, really gave me a great grounding. And just tried to do as much work experience as I could. Uh, did a bit of work experience at Haters. It's a really highly regarded football press agency. Um, 
News Associates had a relationship with Sportsbeat, which is a, a broader sports press agency. Um, and th- those were really good experience because they just kind of throw everything at you and put you out of your comfort zone. Right? You're, you're interviewing a, a British hang glider in 15 minutes. Get on with it. Mm. <laughs> had no, no idea what I was doing, but uh, it, it all makes you better. And then I was lucky that by the time I qualified, Goal happened to have a job for me permanently. So I worked there for three years covering the Premier League. They kind of steered me towards Chelsea, um, but I was still primarily covering the Premier League. And then I left there just as the club correspondent jobs at ESPN were being created. I was lucky enough to get the Chelsea one. Did that for for three years. So yeah, Mourinho got sacked in my second week, covered the, the, the death throes of his time, sort of hitting no man's land, the rise and fall of Conte, and and Sarri's season and then at the end of Sarri's season that's when I, I left ESPN um, because the Athletic was starting and I was really I was exceptionally lucky to be one of the people that got a call and basically recruited by them to cover Chelsea and been there for just over a year now and it, it, it's kind of a weird I, I mean my my industry path wouldn't have been possible to someone who was in the industry when I first came into it that it's a sign of how much things have changed that I've never worked for a newspaper. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's entirely been on online. And, uh, and now, I mean, there are so many different branches of online opening up and subscription services like the athletic, I think it'll just keep changing. What do you, um, what do you think of the athletic? Like how is it working with some of the best journalists in the world? It's, it's an amazing place to work uh, it really is and I I try not to talk about it too much in front of other journalists because you just feel like you're you know it, it's it's weird to it, it's almost seen as bragging about where right, you work yeah. it, it's much it's much more the dumb thing to moan about where you work and, and the things that annoy you but there genuinely aren't really anything that annoy me about this job it's 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 in it's incredible in that I get to work with so many amazing journalists are far more experienced and far better than I am. Um, people share contacts and information to try and create the best story possible. So it's made me a hell of a lot better in my job, even since I started. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to do stories here, not only because they're longer in terms of word count and more detail, um, but just the, the types of stories that we're doing. I've had the opportunity to do things here that I never would have had the chance to do any other any other places that I've worked yeah I think one of those um that you may be referencing or at least yeah one of them would be the 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 piece where you um traveled to Kai Havertz's hometown village of Mariadorf in Germany um so to write uh, an article entitled the people and peach the people and the pitches that shape Kai Havertz which I I really enjoyed so I wanted to ask you what that whole experience was like flying out to Germany and everything just to write this article and, and it was amazing it must have been especially for you yeah it's, it's always a bit daunting when you're having <laughs> a conversation with your editor and they just say oh yeah why don't we uh, why don't you just go to Germany and try and find people that know Kai Havertz it's, <laughs> it's a bit especially in the midst of a pandemic like it's uh it's not not the most straightforward assignment but uh it's it's exciting as well as challenging. Um, 
and obviously I did it in uh, we we took all you know necessary precautions with with regards to COVID and and everything like that. But it, I basically spent a weekend out there, uh, went stayed in Arken and got the train out to Mariadorf, which is about half half an hour outside the city, right on the border of with Holland and, and Belgium. That's where Kai Havertz grew up, and it's it's kind of a Classic sort of German suburbia. It's lots of big, nice houses, uh, very green, very, very quiet, very peaceful. You can see why he's, he seems to be quite a soft-spoken, laid-back guy because it's, uh, it's very much the vibe of the place where he's from. And I managed to find his first boys' club where he, where he played from the age of four till 10. Managed to find a couple of people that spoke English <laughs> and, and remembered Kai Havertz. And, uh, and had a few stories to tell. And, and, and I was quite lucky with the timing because the, the pitch that he first played on at Alemannia Mariadorf is, is going to be ripped up. It might even be being ripped up as we speak um, mm. because they're getting a new, a new kind of 3G style pitch laid um, with, with sort of council money. So, yeah, it was a good time to go. Uh, we timed it to be for the Chelsea-Liverpool game and wanted to watch that game yeah. with the people um, at his at his old club. Didn't quite work out in terms of the gods of the gods of football narrative <laughs> with him with him getting sacrificed at half time after a red card. But yeah, so we in the end we we waited to to run the piece for a few days and then we ran it after he, he scored his hat trick against Barnsley. But it was it it was a nice piece to do. Um, a little bit stressful at the time. Because you're always worried about, do I have enough stories? Do I have enough voices? Um, but I think it all came together in the end. And it's the kind of piece that's a little, quite timeless. So I think people can come back to it in hmm. a year or a year or two or whatever. Hopefully when Kai Havertz is, a, is, is firmly established as central to Chelsea's future. And, um, and then, yeah, they can still get something out of reading it. Yeah, yeah, I, I really... Um, find that interesting the timelessness I think you don't you you may often not get that in in your line of work often writing about kind of um, what Lampard should do etc um, certain players form and I guess that's the same with us in terms of podcasts but when you have those articles that you can can just be come back to and read at any point that's really um, something that's worth a lot um, but Another piece you wrote um, was on Anthony Barry and you called him the Chelsea sign that you haven't heard about, um, which I think it is very fair to say most Chelsea fans may not even know of his existence. Um, but it seems that um, he's been quite significant because since his, since his arrival, there's been huge improvements in our defence. So I wanted to ask you if you know if there's been any kind of direct link between the two. Yeah, I think there was... Um... I think there was a perception when he was coming in, or a lot, or at least a lot of Chelsea fans wanted to to believe that he was a, a defensive specialist who was going to sort out the defence. And that the people that I spoke to at Wigan and the people who are familiar with him from you know his his journey through the coaching qualifications, that's not the sense I got. He's not. He, he might be a very good defensive coach, but it, it's not. He's not a specialist in that sense. He's a, he's an all round. Um, addition to this coaching staff and, and Lampard's backroom team doesn't really have specialists aside from goalkeeper coaches obviously mm. um, 
they they all they all kind of take turns to to lead exercises on on certain things and I, I obviously Chris Jones has got more of a background as a fitness coach so that necessarily you know his expertise is is kind of drawn from there but you know Jody Morris Joe Edwards and now Anthony Barry they're all strong all-round technical tactical coaches so I think Lampard just really values Anthony Barry's voice um, and his wisdom and he was exceptionally highly rated at, at Wigan and and actually in in coaching circles from from the people that studied with him from the people that assessed him you know he was regarded as one of the top students in his class and just because he was at, he was at Wigan you know doesn't mean that he wasn't he isn't one of the brightest young coaching minds in English football so the sense I got was that he he would be a real asset to Chelsea and it, you've already seen like it's hard to measure the impact of, of certain coaches but yeah you have seen that Chelsea have overhauled their defensive set piece system again and cautiously uh cautiously optimistic seems to be working yeah. we, do, we don't know yet yeah. for sure but um and and of course the defense has improved although I think per, personnel has been just as much responsible for that as well um but by all accounts Barry is is someone that they they were really keen to get in everyone rates very highly and he was very much regarded as a player's coach at Wigan very good at building relationships and maintaining relationships and and the sense I've got was that the Chelsea players would really like him yeah if you if you look at some of the Chelsea unseen videos on YouTube you can see him just screaming at the players and always using his voice and that's something which I think Chelsea have missed sometimes and we we also heard that a lot of the top clubs wanted Anthony Barry and that he was a real top coach um and I guess talking about set pieces I guess our real our real challenge will be Burnley tomorrow I guess uh, we'll probably see them um when they're lumping balls into the box um but Moving on into more like the Chelsea players, uh, Euro, um, sorry, the, the Athletic were one of the first to report the fallout between Marcus Alonso and Frank Lampard after the West Brom game. Um, so I was just wondering, how is their uh, relationship looking now? And is it likely that either him or Emerson will leave in January? Yeah, so that was my um, excellent colleague, Simon Johnson, who, who got that info and, and reported that story with, with David Ornstein at the time. And it, and it was big because we, we genuinely ha- haven't heard much in the way of dressing room intrigue or fallouts since Lampard has been in charge. Usually it's like Chelsea manager bingo. It's, it's, it's uh, a question of when rather than if something will kick off in the dressing room. But that, that was the first time that, that we'd heard of like a, a kind of explosive confrontation. And Lampard really wasn't happy with the way Alonso conducted himself after being taken off at half time. He, I think his comments when he was presented with um, the the story that Simon and, and David had written, you know, about a week or so afterwards in his next press conference, I think his comments were quite telling in that he didn't he, he didn't deny it and he didn't um, he didn't go out of his way to defend Alonso. I think he said he said along the lines of you know we want everyone to be in this together and that was the that was the crux of his problem with what Alonso had done was that he felt like by not sitting on the bench or sitting in the stands with the rest of the substitutes and the staff, by trying to get on the team bus um, on his own, he was making the situation about him rather than about the team when Chelsea were in a big hole at halftime of that game. And, and, and he was one of the primary reasons for it. He couldn't really have any 
complaints about being taken off. Um, as we know, he hasn't he hasn't featured. Uh, I'm right in thinking he hasn't featured at all since. Yeah, because no. um, it's suspension as well in the Champions League. Yeah, and and of course we saw Emerson come on, didn't we, against Krasnodar? I was I was a little bit surprised that one of them didn't leave in the summer, at least. And I think that was more of a reflection of the market than anything else that Chelsea couldn't find uh, an an option that that made sense for them either on loan or permanently. Both of them are on you know established first team Chelsea wages, which doesn't make things any easier. I think they'll look again in January. And I think Chelsea and Lampard can't really make the decision right now that it's Alonso's definitely out or Emerson's definitely out because they have to see what's there for them in terms of interested clubs in January. If you say if you say Alonso's out, but then a good bid comes in for Emerson, you have to change that situation. So I think Lampard's been careful not to completely burn his bridges with Alonso. And I think if he has to play him again, he will. He won't have a problem doing that. But certainly wasn't great timing for Alonso to do that when Chilwell, Chilwell's come in and played so well and Chelsea are actively looking to offload one of their left backs. Another player who like looked like he was very likely to leave in the summer um, was Antonio Rudiger. And I think The Athletic, that was just in the article another day, saying we have five centre-backs at the moment. Um, who is the most likely to leave? Because it does—it definitely does seem like one will have to leave at the minimum. Yeah, so this was a a tricky situation and a slightly political one at Chelsea in the summer. I think in that Lampard made his preference quite clear in that he wanted Fakaya Tomori to stick around. Tomori was was the one with the clear option to leave because Everton were very very interested as they were last last summer. Uh, the summer of 2019, in taking him on loan. And Lampard essentially, I don't know if he formally blocked that, but he made it clear he wanted Tamori to stick around and that Rudiger was the one that he saw as more expendable. That's a problem for, for Chelsea as a club because Rudiger's on much higher money. He's a much more established player. He's a much more established player in the dressing room as well. Um, and I think he's a player that's liked by the, the, the hierarchy at Chelsea. Um, and there wasn't as as clear an option that made sense for him towards the end of the window. They certainly weren't going to give him to Tottenham and to Jose Mourinho. Mm. Uh, Chelsea and Tottenham are not in the business of so solving each other's problems. Um, so it, it it's going to be another headache, I think, in January. But it's I I think there might well be more motivation on all sides to to actually move on this in January because. As Simon wrote in one of his match pieces recently, five into four just doesn't go. There aren't the minutes for all of these guys. Chelsea are already out of the Carabao Cup, so that's one competition down. Um, they just don't have the minutes to offer five centre-backs. And the other one to watch is Andreas Christensen, because with Rudiger playing against Krasnodar, what does that mean for him? I think we're just going to have these conversations on an almost weekly basis, depending on who plays. Because every selection decision Lampard makes is going to be read into now because the squad is so big and he's always going to have to leave, leave out a couple of established names. Mm, yeah. Um, the Athletic reported last season that um, Callum Hudson-Odoi had looked to his teammates for some reassurance after receiving some online abuse. And also recently we've seen uh, Ben Chirwell come out saying he, he struggled heavily with confidence last season and he reached out for help 
and that made a big difference to him. Um, so we've got a really interesting uh, question on Twitter from Vinay, who, who wants to ask you if you know if the club have a psychologist that the players can consult with or anything like that. Yeah, so I mean, Chelsea have a head of sports science and psychology, Tim Harkness. He's been at the club for a long time. I think pretty much almost a decade now, maybe even slightly more. Uh, so psychology is definitely a big part of of what they. Um, sorry, psychology is definitely something that they incorporate into their broader player care strategy. And it's not just about you know preserving the players' bodies, about helping their minds as well. Um, I haven't heard anything specific about you know Callum Hudson-Odoi or any other player seeking out psychologists at Chelsea because of abuse or anything else. And we've seen also you know with the various racism incidents at Chelsea or on England duty um, recently that you know that they were they were pretty testing times for for those players as well. Um, I I have a lot of sympathy. For, for players like Hudson Adoy, and also I think when you look at Mason Mount, some of the abuse he's received on Chelsea yeah. Twitter, it, it's a brutal place, and and you can you can often find yourself um, a lightning rod for for criticism that really isn't particularly relevant to you. Like, you know, in in the case of Mount, he's being picked by a manager, and people are somehow viewing that as his fault you know <laughs> yeah he's, he, he's a footballer trying to get picked and he's getting picked so it, or he, he's doing his job that's that's all he can do um and and i don't think you can ever argue that he's not trying out there so oh, yeah. um I, I i think in general twitter's become a pretty toxic place it's not it's not a place i enjoy anywhere near as much as i as i did about 10 years ago um and it feels like it feels like more and more, even within the realm of football, which really depresses me, because football is supposed to be a place where we can all have a bit of fun and, and worry about things that don't actually matter that much. Um, even within the realm of football, it feels more like everything gets turned into sort of a culture war and you get people coming in with their own preconceived agendas about certain players like, you know, yeah. their, their profile picture will be one Chelsea player and they'll they'll. <laughs> They'll stand for that player over at the expense of anyone else, or they'll have a particular agenda against one particular player, and it, it, do, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, I, mm. I'll never understand it. But yeah, I, th- I think it's a difficult time to be a footballer, particularly one that actually manages your social media accounts directly. And I know plenty of them don't. Um, they have agents and social media people to do it for them, and I actually don't blame them for that because you insulate yourself from a lot of the idiots if you do if you do that kind of thing yeah i just wanted to say one thing so i'm not going to reveal who but like there was one um one member of the chelsea squad uh, their family member fully just deleted their twitter because of the amount of abuse they were getting on social media and that's just like really disappointing to see i guess that family members are even struggling to go online because their their son is getting um being abused but yeah it's yeah well and you you think about just think about in theory like what a wonderful thing it is that we didn't have 10 years ago where you've got the foot the footballers that you that you support and idolize and even you know like their family members and things like that are directly contactable in a way that they weren't 10 years ago in theory that should be that should be a wonderful thing that should actually make the the experience of supporting a club um more enjoyable for everyone but clearly people don't see it that way 
and people don't want to engage with it in a positive way. The thing that gets me is that it's supposed to be fans. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, if you're a fan of a club, why? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> moving on from that, I I enjoyed that rant a bit. Um, good to get that off our chests. But um, I wanted to um, think about uh, the amount of attacking midfielders that there are on, on Chelsea's books at the moment. There's really a large number, obviously, at the club at the moment, Havertz and Mount are the main ones. You've got Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Ross Barkley on loan. You've got Tino Andrin coming through. Um, so, you know, or Conor Gallagher on loan as well. Um, but it seems um, it seems crazy to, to say that all of those will be playing for Chelsea in the next few years. It seems like one of those, at least, will surely have to depart at some point but then again it's so hard to say you know Barkley's doing really well on loan Ruben's just coming back from 14 month injury and then the other ones you know Andrew and Gallagher we know how good they are um, and how much potential they have at such a young age um, so I just I guess I just wanted to ask you if there's anything at the moment to suggest who it could be I guess what you'll probably say is it's still really up in the air but you know in terms of who Lampard rates specifically well, I mean, it's you look at the ones that are, that are at the club at the moment. Um, they have to be at the top of that, yeah, at the top of that pecking order. I don't think Kai Havertz is going anywhere. I think he's probably the, <laughs> the most the most important footballer at Chelsea now um, because of everything that signing symbolised about where the club wants to go, and the mm. fact that it wasn't just Lampard pushing to sign him; it was Roman Abramovich pushing to sign. Kai Havertz as well um, so I, th- I think he, he's certainly going to be central to, to what they're doing um, Mason Mount you know we've, we've, we've seen how much Frank Lampard rates him particularly his, his ability to set the tone in terms of the pressing and intensity of the team so he, he's crucial to what Chelsea are doing and then there's kind of that, that blurred line between where does an attacking midfielder become a winger or become an attacking midfielder you know Ziyech could be a number 10 he could, he could mm. play off the right um, Christian Pulisic has played at, at, as a 10 before, so has Callum Hudson-Odoi. So they have a critical mass, even within the squad now, of, of attack-minded midfield players. And then, of course, when you look at, I think Ruben Loftus-Cheek just has to take one game at a time at this point. Um, he, just, he, just needs, he just needs minutes and he just needs to, to start to, to show people at large show people at Chelsea and show people in, in, in football at large that he can be the player that he looked like he was becoming just before he got that Achilles injury. Uh, my, my sense is that I don't think Ross Barkley is going to be a long-term part of Chelsea's plans. I think they they bought him as a relatively low-cost gamble. Uh, well, they, I don't think they even really saw it as a gamble, to be honest, at £15 because they know that they can, in, in any normal sort of market they'll be able to make a tidy profit on him uh and and he's he looks like he's kind of topped out as a a decent squad player rather than a starter for Chelsea Conor Gallagher not entirely sure yet I think it's too too early Tino Andrew in the same you know that a lot of these younger guys they they just need to focus on their progress um but the I think the overall picture is that Chelsea have some hard decisions to make they're, they're good decisions. They're the decisions you want to have because you're picking between really good footballers. They, but they're going to be hard decisions over the next couple of years about who they're building around and who they have to let go. And if they don't make those decisions in time, 
eventually those decisions will be made for them because the players that aren't playing or don't feel as if Chelsea's the best place for their development will make that known and, and push their way out because that's just how football works. Yeah, um, yeah, it's really interesting. And another player on loan who definitely Chelsea fans hold in really high regard and who have realised a few games in with the tactics we're playing, including myself, that Ethan Ampadu uh, probably could have stayed and done quite a good job for it. Uh, quite done quite a good job for us so far this season. But I just want to know what are what does Lampard think of him? Does he see him in his future plans? And is that as a midfielder, defender, or both? Or what's uh, Lampard really likes him. Everything he said about Ampadu has been really positive. Um, but the thinking at club level, and I think from Ampadu's side as well this summer, was that he'd had a wasted year at RB Leipzig. And I, he might have learnt quite a bit working under Julian Nagelsmann, but he certainly hadn't played a lot. And and so he needed he needed a season of minutes, regular minutes, at a good level, preferably in the Premier League. The problem with that is they've sent him to a Premier League club that have a very unique system that is quite difficult for outsiders to pick up and one of the most settled starting 11s in the Premier League. Um, so he's really struggling to play for Sheffield United as well. And I think this is a big problem for Chelsea because Ampadu is a huge talent. He, he really is. You know, you saw how much Antonio Conte rated him when he was 17. You know, he already thought he was ready to be a part of the first team squad. And his development, at least at club level, has, has completely stalled since then. So he's still got time on his side because he is so young. And I think Chelsea would very much like him to be a part of their long-term plans. But there, there is also the, the aspect of what is his best position. And I'm not sure anyone 100% knows, maybe not even him. Uh, I, I personally think he's probably best suited to being a centre-back in a team that has the ball a lot. You know, like a, a high possession team, which is the kind of team Lampard wants Chelsea to be. I think his passing range is very good for that, where he's got the whole game in front of him. And I think he's physical enough that maybe his lack of height wouldn't be relative lack of height. He's taller than me. Uh, <laughs> uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, but he can also be a defensive midfielder. I don't, I, you know, that doesn't chime particularly well with Lampard's pursuit of Declan Rice. But... Uh, I, I do think they want him to be a part of their long-term plans. He just has to play. Talking about Declan Rice, um, uh, talking about Declan Rice, um, the club, oh well, the Athletic were really confident in the summer that we were going to sign Ben Chilwell and that an agreement was going to be reached. Is that a feeling around the club with Declan Rice? No, I don't think we were at that stage. Uh, certainly, It was certainly never that impression over the summer, mainly because of West Ham's stance. You know, David Gold and David Sullivan, I think they realised when they sold, maybe maybe only after they sold Grady Diangana, yeah. uh, just how much ill feeling that, that stirred up among the fans. Um, and you could probably ask broader questions of West Ham's strategy over the summer because they sold him saying, oh, we're going to reinvest that money on a centre-back. And then they went out and bought Saeed Benrahma on the final day of the transfer window. <laughs> Could have just kept Diangana, but um, that's West Ham. Um, but it, <laughs> but anyway, they, you know, they. I think they they see that selling Rice, and not just selling Rice, selling Rice to Chelsea, and to Frank Lampard, would be 
a thousand times worse for them PR wise with the fans right. in selling Grady D and Garner to West Brom would be. So that that's the nature of their reluctance. And I think that makes it quite difficult for Chelsea. It doesn't make it impossible. Um, the dream, probably the ideal scenario for Chelsea in terms of getting rice is that West Ham get relegated this season. And then they're in a position where they have to sell him. Uh, we'll see whether that happens or not. I don't know. Um, but it's going to be one that rumbles on, I think. I, I don't see it. I, I'd be surprised if it happens in January, just because if West Ham weren't minded to do it last summer, why would they do it mid-season? But it might be one that Chelsea revisit next summer. It's clear that um, Lampard's interest in Rice isn't going away. And you've seen with the way he's performed this season, I think he's justifying that interest as well. He's been excellent. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it would be brilliant if we got Rice, but... Then again, as you were saying, with Ampadu, um, with all the players that we have, it, it does create a bit of confusion. Um, but slightly away from uh, the players' side of things, we've got another question from one of our, our followers on Twitter, which I think is really interesting. Um, you may not know the answer, um, but Brandon uh, wants to know how involved uh, the club are with this whole idea of the European Super League. Yeah, so this is one where whenever whenever these stories come up, Obviously, as reporters, we'll all we'll all follow up with our respective clubs and just mm. ask them any anything to say on this. And they they'll always give the impression that they don't want to touch it with a ten foot barge pole, basically, because <laughs> none. Of, I think the the stance with with all the Premier League clubs, not just Chelsea, is probably best described like this, which is if a European Super League was going to happen, they know they're going to be invited. So they're not worried about that. They know they're going to be involved, unless you're maybe, um, maybe Tottenham, and you know there there are talks of only taking five of the big six rather than six. Then maybe if you're Tottenham or Arsenal, you're slightly worried. I think if you're Chelsea, Liverpool, City, United, um, because of what you've done on the pitch in recent years and and what your club does off the field in terms of revenue, I think you'd, you'd be pretty confident you're going to be at that table. But none of them want to be seen to be pushing it. The the desire to push it is much more coming from the European giants, um, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, Bayern Munich, because I think they're all seeing that they in the long term they they don't have the safety net of Premier League revenue, particularly TV revenue, mm. and and they have much less competitive leagues on the whole. You know, they have one, t- one two-team leagues. There are, there is still nominally, at least, a big six in the Premier League with two or three very aspirational clubs like Leicester, Wolves, Everton. You know, who have, who have desires of breaking into that. Um, so I think the Premier League clubs don't feel the same sense of urgency, but they also know that if the European Super League happens, they'll be there. So they're not particularly worried about it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and going now back to the transfer window, we obviously have just spent about 200 mil, 250 mil, whatever. Obviously, a lot of that has come from Maratta and Hazard, but it's still huge money spent. Are there any uh, specific positions or players we're heavily scouting who we could possibly buy in the next two windows? Well, I think uh, I think with scouting... Um, with most elite clubs, they're scouting all positions all the time. Mm. And and what I've what I've heard about Chelsea scouting network in particular is that they will focus on players 
kind of in their late teens, um, just breaking into first team football up to about the age of 22, 23, you know, players on the, on, on the way up that have a lot of resale value and they will be monitoring those players and compiling scout reports on them for several years. Um, and so, I mean, that was certainly the case with Kai Havertz, for example. Uh, but I think that all top clubs are doing that for all positions at all times because you can't predict what the individual needs of a certain manager will be or what the sudden demands of changing your style of play or injuries or any of the other variables that can happen to a first-team squad. You never know what that will do. So, so you want to have as big a list as possible and as big a network as possible. And Chelsea, like, like a lot of the other elite European clubs, want to be everywhere all the time. One of the most talked about Chelsea players um, on the internet at the moment, um, I think it's fair to say, is Callum Hudson-Odoi. Um, lots of fans, in fact, including myself, quite upset with his uh, recent lack of playing time. Um, so I just wanted to ask if you know exactly what the situation with him and Lampard is at the moment. Is there anything going on behind the scenes um, or is it just a case of, you know, there are so many elite level players ahead of him? Well, I th- I, it's one that I'm still trying to get to the bottom of fully um, because now, as things stand, yeah, there are a lot of elite attacking midfielders to compete with. But when the season started, Ziyech was injured, Pulisic was injured. And I think that went to the to the heart of frustration of a lot of Chelsea fans that Hudson-Odoi still yeah. wasn't getting major minutes, even though there was nominally an opportunity there, especially when they see you know, Mason Mount starting on the wing rather than in central midfield or, or in a more central role attacking midfield. Um, Lampard has been frustrated with Hudson-Odoi at times, I think. Uh, he's certainly not the only player that's frustrated him in, in, in the first team squad. I think there are certain things you can see when you're watching Hudson Adoy that he, he's still a little bit raw. He can give the ball away in, in bad areas sometimes. His decision making in the final third is not always perfect. His, his technique is, is not always flawless in key moments. But he does make things happen. And I, you know, I just wrote a piece for the Athletic, uh, sort of digging into the more advanced numbers behind a lot of Chelsea's attackers. And it's a relatively small sample size for Hudson-Odoi because we just haven't seen him very much. But his numbers are very good in terms of... Creatively, yeah. Yeah, the amount of shots he creates, um, the the amount of assists that his play, you know, kind of should generate. Uh, He he measures well by all of those metrics. Um, And so it, it would be good, I think, particularly when he's on operating off the left flank where he can cut inside and, and really run at players. It, it's it's more complicated, I think, because when you look at Chelsea's wingers, a lot of them want to play off the left. And that, that's always been a problem for Chelsea. Willian played his entire career on the right, despite wanting to play on the left because he had to balance Eden Hazard. And whether you put Hudson-Odoi or Pulisic on the right, it still feels a little bit like a, a square peg in a round hole. Um, but I think he will get more opportunities. Whether he'll get enough opportunities to satisfy himself, we'll have to see. But the, the goal against Krasnodar, albeit slightly fortuitous, I think his all-round performance was good. And that can only bode well for him in terms of trying to convince Lampard to give him some more minutes. Yeah, I think um, with Hudson-Odoi, I think it's more a case of... Um, 
Chelsea fans getting frustrated because, you know, Bayern so clearly want him so badly. And it just feels like if he doesn't play, you know, he'll just, they'll just leave. Yeah, I mean, that that is the ever-present danger, it seems. I yeah. mean, hudson Adoy's camp, I have to say, you know, they, they've been very aggressive at every stage in, in making sure that he has good leverage in these conversations with Chelsea. You know, throughout his contract standoff, he yeah. had all the cards because he had another major European club that were, uh, I think Hassan Salihamidzic admitted he was in love with him. So, you know, that, that, that was the strength of interest um, that, that they were, Chelsea were dealing with. But I think Chelsea, as a club, don't feel as panicked about the situation now because they've got Hudson-Odoi tied down to a new contract. That, that, was, that was where all of the panic was coming from um, in, internally from Chelsea before he signed that new deal was just the, the, the fact that Chelsea might be forced to sell him. Um, but I think if he's not getting the opportunities that he wants, then it will be a conversation that his camp will look to have with Chelsea in January, even if it turns out to be just a loan or something. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the best op- option would be, but we're not far away from it now, are we? It's two months until January. So yeah. the next two months are going to be very important. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's, it's such a, a weird one because the... Um the summer transfer window, the end of that and the beginning of the January transfer window is so close together this year. Um, but um, on another note, um, our regular co-host Dan, unfortunately, couldn't be here today, but he has given us a really interesting uh, question to ask you, Liam. Um, and it's it's basically asking whether Frank Lampard's job has ever genuinely been under threat. No, I don't think so. Um we, we've had that sense with other managers. You, you, yeah. you, you tend to recognise the signs. I mean, there were, a couple of, there were a couple of moments where I really thought uh, Sarri was in, in serious danger um, in the second half of that season. I think particularly the, the Cardiff away game comes to mind, whereas Piliqueta yeah. scored that late equaliser. I think if he, or it was either late equaliser, late winner, if he doesn't score that goal, yeah. I'm not sure Sarri survives to win the Europa League. Um, and that's just one example. So you, you generally do get the, you, you generally do do get quite good at reading the signs of someone that covers Chelsea uh, of when a manager is in danger. But I mean, last season was not a normal Chelsea season. Every everyone at the club knew that, and um, and I think even though there was a bit of adversity, even though there were some some bad results, I think the the context in which Lampard was operating was always at the forefront of, of everyone's minds. And in the end, he, he achieved what he had to achieve, which was top four. Um, it's a shame they couldn't win the FA Cup. It would have been a very nice bonus. It would have been ahead of schedule for a lot of those young players. But that's all it would have been was a bonus. This season is the pressure season. Um, this is the welcome to the Chelsea job season because they've spent all this money. They're not expecting to win the league necessarily um they're expecting to get a lot closer to whoever wins the league and to show progress uh of building another elite contending team and and that's Lampard's main job and of course he has all these smaller challenges along the way which is managing this massive squad and showing that he can he can keep people happy as well as building this this great team with this 
with this brand new identity. So that that's going to be a big challenge for him. And the pressure, the serious pressure may come at some stage, but I think we're still a little bit too early on in this season. I mean, he's only lost one game. You know, you look at Chelsea Twitter and you think, oh yeah, he'll be sacked tomorrow. But that's not the... <laughs> That's not the barometer that anyone uses. You know, he, he's 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 in a decent position in the league at the moment. Uh, everyone knew that the start of this season was going to be a bit of a mess for everyone, and I think every big club has had notable hiccups so far. Mm-hmm. But as long as Chelsea show progress and keep going in the right direction, and he cobbles together enough points while the new signings are finding their feet then he'll have a good chance, I think. Yeah, I think there would always be challenges and pressure from the board, from the media. Um, But Lampard is one who has done a very good job so far. But one area where he may may get a challenge is actually from the players in midfield. And uh, there are always, every single window, rumours of Jorginho and Kante leaving. Um, So what's the situation with them two? And could one of them leave? Well, I don't think the rumours about Kante leaving have ever come from anyone at the club or from Kante, actually. There's been a lot of whispering from outside and and Simon and I have both kind of discussed it as a hypothetical of whether Chelsea should try and cash in on Kante. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm kind of of the mind that if they get a good offer, it probably would be a good decision on balance um, to to sell him and, and kind of everyone move on but I don't see where that offer's coming from and as long as that as long as that doesn't happen you know everything Lampard has ever said about Kante underlines that he thinks he's one of the best midfielders in the world and he's absolutely integral to what he's doing he's played more Premier League minutes than any other player so far for Chelsea Uh, so it's clear what Lampard thinks about him Jorginho is a murkier one because it was pretty clear towards the end of last season that Lampard didn't consider him central to the team anymore. Um, he it was clear that he he'd kind of made the judgment that the the weaknesses of Jorginho outweighed the strengths that he brought to the team. And it's been quite interesting in the first weeks of this season to see Lampard kind of go back on that and go back to Jorginho, especially when the feeling over the summer was very much that he could leave if if a suitable offer came in. And I think he, you know, I think his his people have, have spoken. I think about the fact that there were Arsenal was an option at one point. I don't think it was ever an option for Chelsea to to loan him to Arsenal. Maybe sell him to Arsenal, but I, I don't think they were ever. I don't think there was ever any talk of significant money. And that's the tricky thing with Jorginho. If Chelsea were going to let him go, in their mind or in the mind of Marina Granovskaya, he has a lot of value because he's been a productive player for, for you know, under Maurizio Sarri and now last season under Lampard as well for most of the year. And they paid what, the best part of 60 million for him or 50 million. So um, Chelsea would be looking for a big chunk of that back. And especially post-pandemic, or mid-pandemic, don't really know where that money's coming from. <laughs> So yeah. he, 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 it's kind of an awkward one with him at the moment, but I don't think he's particularly central to to what Lampard sees as the future of this team, even if he is currently playing quite regularly. Mm. 
I think one reason why Jorginho didn't leave was Gilmore's injury. And um, I've actually just refreshed Twitter and I think he's, there's a picture of him back in training uh, behind some uh, players. But Gilmore's, uh, Gilmore's return to the team opens up like a new, um, a new aspect to the tactics and formations we can use. As uh, this season, we've used, we used the 4 triple 2 on the first day against Brighton. We've uh, used the 4-2-3-1 mainly this season, 3-4-3 against uh, Man United, and we've also switched to 4-3-3 in-game a little bit. Is there a certain tactic which Lampard is pushing towards? And, yeah, is Kante the main holding DM if we were to play the 4-3-3? Well, that's, that's what we saw towards the end of last year, didn't we? Was, was Kante playing that deepest midfield role instead of Jorginho? And then, and then when he was out, Gilmore played it instead of Jorginho. Um, I get the impression, I mean, I know there's a lot of people on online Chelsea fans that want to see Lampard go back to that, particularly with um, Havertz and Mount either side of Kante. Uh, I get the impression Lampard will probably try to take a look at that in in real minutes at some point in the next few weeks. Uh, he, I mean, his selection is always informed by the type of team that Chelsea are playing as well. Hence, they went to a back three with wing-backs against Man United. I think partly because he was expecting Solskjaer to do the same. Um, so that they will mix things up anyway. But I, I reckon that now everyone is fit, or almost everyone is fit, 4-3-3 um, three, three could, could become a bit more of an option with, with Kante back in that defensive midfield role. The, the one issue I think Lampard has with it and why he went away with it, away from it, sorry, um, between the end of last season and this season is that Kante doesn't really progress the ball from that position. He, he tends to pass quite safe, pass sideways, pass backwards. And when you're trying to be a possession team, a fast paced possession team, you kind of need, you, you kind of need someone who's going to pick those sharp, incisive forward passes. I think if you combine Kante and Jorginho into one player, <laughs> Lampard yeah. would pick him every week in that position. Billy Gilmore, but, mate. Well, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it yeah. is. I mean, I, I am very interested to see what happens when Gilmore is fit again because we we know that Lampard absolutely loves him. I think he he elevated him to the first team a lot sooner than most managers would have done, and that and that was indicated with a couple of great performances. And he he did show flashes of being able to do the defensive side as well. Um, he had a couple of shaky performances, so you're going to expect that from a young player. But he's got a lot of potential, and I, I think Lampard might give him another go when he's fit again. Yeah. Um, last question, really. Um, with Edward Mendy having joined and obviously impressed so much, um, we all saw this coming, but it's it's left Kepa in a bit of a muddle. Um, signed for 72 million and he's now not starting um and he has been injured recently so he hasn't even been on the bench um but I, I just wondered whether we could potentially see him leave in January I guess a loan would be um much more likely than a permanent uh deal but um I guess the other question that comes with that is is there any interest from Eddie club really um or perhaps on the other hand do the club and Frank Lampard still have faith in him it's an absolute mess of a situation now uh, mm. with Kepa. And my understanding is that his people looked long and hard for potential loan options towards the end of the last transfer window. 
and there weren't any. There just weren't any credible ones, um, particularly because he's on such big money uh, and on such a long contract that it's it's quite difficult for any club outside the Premier League. And realistically, it would be a club outside the Premier League, probably in Spain or maybe Italy, um, to, to match even a significant chunk of those wages. And and also, when you look around European football, how many teams, how many Champions League, even top-level Europa League-level teams are looking for a starting goalkeeper right now? It's, it doesn't seem that straightforward out there. Having said all that, I would be surprised with things the way they are if he doesn't leave in January on loan because this is just an untenable situation as it is. Um, Mendy has come in and played well. I think as long as he continues to perform even solidly, his position is pretty bulletproof as far as Lampard is concerned. Lampard just wants a goalkeeper that he can rely on and hopefully forget about. You know, <laughs> you don't you don't really want to have to think about his involved uh, game after yeah. game. Uh, and I, I really feel sorry for Kepa because it's clearly a, a a huge crisis of confidence that's just snowballed, and now he's doing things that he he would never normally do when he's out on the pitch. Um, so he he clearly needs a change of scene and Chelsea clearly have enough cover particularly now Petr Cech has dusted off his goalkeeper gloves <laughs> um, so yeah I, I would expect him to, to go somewhere on loan in January probably to Spain but it, it's too soon to say exactly where Right I think that, that wraps it up really um, thank you for joining me Parth and, and asking the, the questions alongside me uh, yeah, really good pod. Thank you, Liam. No yeah, worries, guys. Thanks. It was a pleasure to talk Chelsea. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Liam. Appreciate it a lot. Um, had a good time. Uh, and yeah, thanks for listening. As I said at the top, you can find us on all our social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram. Make sure to check out uh, our website for some great articles. Not quite as great as Liam's, but we're trying to get there. <laughs> um, and yeah, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.